All right, good evening, everyone. Let's, uh, let's, let's begin. So first of all, if anyone doesn't have source sheets, there are short source sheets up here in the front. Are there some by the back also? Okay, by the back as well. Um, it's a schus to be able to continue our learning together, especially in preparation for such an overwhelming, auspicious, obviously sad, tragic, and heartbreaking day or period of time, but at the same time, something of incredible and pivotal importance for us. I want to begin first by thanking the sponsors for tonight's share, to thank Robin Schaefer for dedicating this share tonight in trepidation for the upcoming fast. May it be meaningful for all of us. To thank Devorah Stern for dedicating this year with gratitude to the entire Kihila and community. To thank Greg and Rachel Levitan for dedicating this year tonight in memory of Rachel's aunt, Maxine Miller-Gould, who passed away on the 20th of Tammuz. And to thank Julie Roll for dedicating this year tonight to Le'ilo Nishmas, her mother, Leah Bas David Zichron Levrach. We hope that in the merit of our Tammuz Torah, all of the Nishamas will have an Aliyah and the family's a Nechama. Preparing for Tisha B'Av and certainly experiencing Tisha B'Av itself is an overwhelming experience. It's an overwhelming experience because what we try to do on Tisha B'Av is really to go ahead and compact 2,000 years of pain, 2,000 years of heartbreak, 2,000 years of difficulty into one day. You see, the incredible thing about the Jew, the incredible thing about Am Yisrael, is we walk around this world with so much pain, right? If you think about it, if you ever take a moment to just take a step back and reflect on the experience, the Kalali Yisrael experience, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And it could easily reduce even a person who feels minimally into tears. If you think about the heartbreak, the tragic loss, the trials, the travails, the suffering of Am Yisrael over the last 2,000 years, if you contemplate the destruction of Beis HaMikdash, if you contemplate the Crusades, if you contemplate the pogroms, if you contemplate the Holocaust, if you contemplate terror attacks, if you contemplate everything that we have gone through as a people, it's overwhelming. But the incredible strength of Am Yisrael is that we have the ability to engage in what I'll call some healthy cognitive dissonance. Normally, cognitive dissonance is a bad thing. Right? To divorce yourself from reality and to go ahead and go through life ignoring certain realities is an unhealthy thing, but sometimes it's very helpful. And Kalal Yisrael deals with our trauma how? The truth is, day in and day out, we push it back into the recesses of our subconscious. That's what I do. I don't wear my pain on my sleeve. You know that there are some people, when you ask them, how are you doing? How are you doing? You, and you know those people who give you the answer, oh, you know, and, and as soon as the first sigh comes out, you're like, oh God, I budgeted two minutes for this conversation. And now I see this is gonna be, this is gonna be a doozy. And they, and they unload everything. They unload everything. Generally, what happens with your relationship with those kind of people? You're a bunch of nice people over here, right? Generally, people usually end up avoiding those kinds of people because it's, it's too heavy. It's too heavy. I can't, we've all got our peckle. We've all got our things that we're carrying around. And the truth is part of being an emotionally healthy person is knowing what to wear on your sleeve, but then also what to push back into your own subconscious. Not everything is Rishos Not everything is for the public domain. Not everything is to be worn on your sleeve. Not everything is to be shared with every single individual. There are certain difficulties and challenges that I share and other things that I bear by myself. Or when I say by myself, perhaps with my immediate family, perhaps with a close circle of friends. And this is how Kalal Yisrael exists. At the end of the day, you ask the Jew on any given day, how are things going? And what's the answer? What's the answer? Incredible. Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem is the best answer, right? Baruch Hashem, whatever it is. Baruch Hashem, how are things going? Things are going great. And I'm saying, if you, if you ask a Jew, I mean like, ask me how Kalal Yisrael is doing. How is Kalal Yisrael doing? How is Kalal Yisrael doing? Well, you know, again, even that's a difficult question. Are you talking about Kalal Yisrael, all segments of Kalal Yisrael? You're talking about Orthodox Jews, Conservative Jews, Reform Jews, all of God. Who are you talking about? But in general, the answer is Kalal Yisrael is doing great. We're great. Why? Because I know I'm one day closer to Geula today than I was yesterday. I know Baruch Hashem that Kalal Yisrael is healthy and robust and vibrant. I know all of these things. And so day in and day out, day in and day out, I keep a disposition of overwhelming simcha, optimism, 
hope, and joy. And the amazing part is all of that changes for one day. And on Tisha B'Av, on Tisha B'Av, what ends up happening is the collective pain of 2,000 years that's pushed to the subconscious comes gushing out. Comes gushing out. I remember as a child, my grandmother, Zichon Levracha, lost, after the war, she came to America. All of her siblings went to Eretz Yisrael. And I remember, I wasn't even so young. I remember my grandmother's sister in Eretz Yisrael had passed away. Okay, Kenai Nahara, she survived the war. She had a family, lived, lived. She probably at that point was maybe in her late, her mid-80s, passed away. And I remember during Shiva, my grandmother was sobbing. And my grandmother was a normally very stoic person. My grandmother was the kind of person she can get her hand stuck in a car door. And she'd be like, oh, that's inconvenient. Right? In other words, never, never, never an emotional person, but never, never a cry, nothing. And I remember being so surprised at the shiva that she was so emotive and that she was like, like sobbing. And I remember asking my mother, she's living be well, like, what's, what, what is this? And my mother, I don't know, I, I think my mother just understood this, that you have to understand, she said to me, she said, Bubby lost everyone. She lost everyone. She lost her parents, she lost siblings, most of her siblings. And there was no shiva. There was no shloshim gathering. There was no levaya, there was nothing. These people never mourned for all that they lost. And so when there is a moment of mourning, all of that pent up grief comes out. All of that that never had the opportunity to have any level of real expression, all of that heartbreak and all of that sadness and all of that profound eviscerating pain that was never dealt with comes out the moment that there's like, like there's a break in the dam, there's a little bit of a fissure in the dam, everything just begins to pour out. And that stayed with me, that explanation stayed with me because I think that that's truly the essence of Tisha B'Av as well. Throughout the year, I keep it together. Throughout the year, solid. Throughout the year, how are things going? Fantastic, great. And comes Tisha B'Av, we fall apart. And it's designed to fall apart. How do you know if you have a successful Tisha B'Av? is if you cry. That's it. It's not that you daven with kavana, because you should daven with kavana every single day. Not you come to shul, you go to a shir, you watch this video, that I watched 17 videos. That's a good Tisha B'Av. Hey, okay, watch as many videos as you want, but that's not what makes or breaks a Tisha B'Av. Do you know what Tisha B'Av is? Tisha B'Av is one tear. Tisha B'Av is if you could connect with the pain of your people in a way that you are actually moved to cry. And it doesn't have to be sobbing, just that your eyes well up with tears because for that one moment, you feel the collective pain of your people. That's Tisha B'Av. That's Tisha B'Av. And the truth is, we use this day, as I mentioned before, to mourn everything, right? You know, it's interesting. We have a Yom HaShoah, right? After the war again, the Israeli government, they made Yom HaShoah. Yom HaShoah never really took off that much in from circles. Part of it because also, again, it's in Chodesh Nisan, generally when mourning is prohibited. But the truth is, there's a simpler reason. You don't need, you don't really need a Yom HaShoah. Just like I don't need any additional day for Kalal Yisrael's mourning. We have it. We have it. Tisha B'Av is the catch-all for everything. Whatever the pain, whatever the tragedy, whatever the difficulty, Tisha B'Av is the day that we mourn it. And that's why when you look through the kinos, the kinos themselves go through the entirety of Jewish history, all the way up until the Holocaust, for even before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, Vayikonin Yermiyo Al Yoshio, which is about the king, prophet Jeremiah mourning over the king Yoshio, which was before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. Everything from then up until the Holocaust, all of it is mourned on this one day. But the truth is, there's one event, and it's interesting, as I was preparing for this shir, I want to tell you, when, when Rosh Chodesh Av comes, I find myself like enveloped in, in a heaviness, just in a heaviness. And I'm normally like a pretty upbeat person, right? I think, looking at my wife, 
just give me a nod, throw me a bone, thank you. Right? <laughs> Normally, like, 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 a, like a pretty upbeat, try to be an optimistic person. And Rosh Chodesh Av comes, and there's, there's a heaviness. There's, on one hand, again, there's untold possibilities. It's only Tuesday. It's only Tuesday. And there's so much that can happen between tonight and Sunday. There's so much that can happen. But at the end of it, there's a heaviness. And that heaviness is rooted in primarily one event. And that one event is the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And it struck me as I was seeing, as I was preparing for the shir, that out of all the years that I've spoken on Tisha B'Av and all the shirm I've given, I don't think I've ever given a shir about the Beis HaMikdash. And what it means to us to have lost the Beis HaMikdash. I thought to myself, how could it be? How could it be all of these years I've never given a shir about the Beis HaMikdash? And there's a simple answer to it. Simple answer to it is because I think for most of us, it's an unrelatable loss. It's an unrelatable loss. 2,000 years ago, there was a beautiful temple that stood atop Harabayis, a magnificent, magnificent structure, both begashmius uberuchnius, materially and spiritually. Okay? 2,000 years is a very long time. For 2,000 years, that means I don't know it, my parents don't know it. As far back as my generations go, no one, no one in my family knew the Beis HaMikdash. So it's hard to mourn for that which you do not know. But at the end of the day, as much as Tisha B'Av is a catch all day for all of the history of Jewish tragedy, it is the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash that creates the primary mourning signature on this date. And because of that, it behooves us in preparation for Tisha B'Av to spend tonight focusing a little bit on the loss of the Beis HaMikdash and practically what does that mean for us? So let's begin. Let's quote you in number one, a Pasuk in Eicha. The Navi says as we'll read Amatzi Shabbos, Ba'cho So remember again, we begin in Eicha, and Eicha of course again is a Megillah, detailing the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and in the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, in this Megillah, ultimately again, Yerushalayim is referred to in a variety of different ways, but often Yerushalayim is referred to as a widow as a widow, as a woman who has lost that which she loves in this world. And she cries at night, And there's an amazing Medrash number two. The Medrash writes, Why does the Megillah say that she cries at night? She cries by day, she cries at night, the widow cries at all hours. Why at night? And the Medrash says, Because sound carries at night. See, at night, when the world is quiet, you hear a lot more things. So when you hear someone crying at night, the cries are so much more pronounced. And the Medrash tells a story. The Medrash tells an amazing story. There was a woman who lived in the neighborhood of Rabbi Gamliel. And this woman lost her child. Ben Tishchores means she lost a young child. And every single night, this woman would cry for her son. Rabbi Gamil would hear her crying. And he would hear this, this bereaved mother crying. And as he would hear her crying, he would remember, he would be reminded, he was reminded of the loss of the Beis HaMikdash. If you can imagine the scene, so every single night in this neighborhood, everyone heard this bereaved mother crying. She was crying by day also probably, but during the day there's a lot of commotion. So every single night she's crying. And every single night when she would cry, Rabbi Gamliel would remember the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, and he would cry along with her. Rabbi Gamliel was so overwhelmed by grief, that literally, Ashenis means his eyelashes fell out. In other words, he cried so much that it had a negative impact on his eyes. And it was so traumatic on Begamil that his students had to move him to a different neighborhood. Students had to move him to a different neighborhood. And it's a striking medrash. 
Because in the most basic level, what's the association between chas v'shalom, the loss of a child, and the loss of the Beis HaMikdash? They seem to be two very different types of losses. Yet every single night when this bereaved mother cried for her son, Rabbi Gamil was reminded of the churban, reminded of the destruction, and cried along with her. Hold that question. We're going to circle back to that at the end of this year. Let's analyze a little bit. What was so special about the Beis HaMikdash? What, what, what was it that made the Beis HaMikdash unique? Understand, you could say, of course, what made the Beis HaMikdash unique was the fact that it was a gathering place for Klal Yisrael. Okay? But the truth is, Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, could gather anywhere and everywhere. Of course, we know, on the most basic level, what makes the Beis HaMikdash most unique. I, I say, I, I've said this many times throughout the years, that I think when Mashiach comes, and we rebuild the base Hamikdash Hashem I think we're going to be happy, but I think we're also going to be a little scared. Why? Because if you think about it, there's one base Hamikdash for Klal Yisrael, right? There's not a modern Orthodox base Hamikdash, a Yeshivish base Hamikdash, a Zionist base Hamikdash, and a Turekarta base Hamikdash. There's not a Hashkama minion, a Karlbach minion, an early minion, a late minion, a teen minion, a young couple's minion. You see now. The way, the way, unfortunately, we operate is, I want my Judaism the way I want it. So I want to dive in early, I want to dive in late, I want to dive in here. Again, it's a symptom of not having a Beis HaMikdash, that it's a la carte Yiddishkeit. You know, I, I, this is how I want it, and so this is how I make it now again. Baruch Hashem, we're vibrant, it's working for us now. But you know, the Beis HaMikdash, there's one Mikdash. C- can you imagine what that's going to look like? Right? You're going to be walking like, wow, they daven here? Like, they, they daven here? Right? They're, they're coming here also? Yeah, everybody davens here. There's one address for Klal Yisrael. And when you're Ola Regal on Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, everyone comes to the same place, which is why if we truly want the base Hamikdash, we have to work on getting along with all kinds of people. Because that is the hallmark of the messianic era. People who are firmer than you, people who are not as firm than you, people who look like you, don't look like you. We have to cultivate the ability to get along and to love every single Jew because very soon we're all going to be worshiping in the same Beis HaMikdash together. But on an additional level, if you take a look at number three, in the Yaros Devash, Yaros Devash was written by Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz, who lived from 1690 to 1764. He explains something very profound. He says, So this is interesting. The Yaros Devash writes that the centerpiece of the Beis HaMikdash were sacrifices, karbanos. Now the truth is, this is a little bit difficult for us to wrap our head around. Because I think many of us hopefully think about this about what's going to be with Karbanos in the third base HaMikdash. Can you imagine that? You're packing up the minivan, right? Oh, we forgot the sheep, right? So, so let's, let, 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 don't worry, you can buy sheep at the base HaMikdash also. There's a Lishkas HaTlaim. But like, it's interesting, because again, I don't know, in Baltimore, there are a lot of dog people, I'm not going to lie. As a transplant from New Jersey, I still find it surprising, right? But it's different here. In, in any event, right, Jews aren't necessarily traditionally big animal people. Now the base HaMikdash comes, the base HaMikdash comes, and now again, we're bringing carbonos, bringing carbonos. And by the way, with a carbon, you know, it's not just like, okay, certain carbonos you could send with someone else, but other times the owner has to do smicho, has to place his hands on top of the carbonos. It's going to be fascinating. And the Yaros Tevash says, Rebunos Abishad says, the primary thing of the Beis Hamikdash, the primary aspect of the Beis Hamikdash are carbonos. It's all about, it's all carbonos all the time. Sacrificial order, sacrificial rites is what makes the Beis HaMikdash because if you think about it, the truth is it's not davening because you could daven anywhere. It's not even just simply being together, the achtos, because we can establish Klaiswa achtos anywhere. Karbonos, sacrifices, cannot be offered anywhere other than the Beis HaMikdash itself. And therefore, says the Yaros Tevash, it is the Karbonos, the sacrificial order, that makes the Beis HaMikdash most unique. So what's so unique about Karbanos? What was so special about Karbanos? So number four, it's actually very beautiful. The Bnei Yisachar, I'm not going to do it inside, I'll tell you it outside. The Bnei Yisachar was the Sri Elimelech of Dinov, who lived from 1783 to 1841. 
And the Bnei one of the great Hasidic masters, explains, because the interesting part about a carbon is a carbon incorporates all aspects of the world. You know, in the, in the, we call it the living world, there's four different categories. There's domain, which means inanimate objects, someach, objects that grow, chai, things that are alive, and medaber, things that speak. Those are the four orders, that's, that's the, that's in the world, those are the four levels of existence. And the Bnei Yisachar says that it's fascinating that Karbonos use all four of these things. He explains this is fascinating. He says, the carbon, the animal, is chai, it's living. The eitzim, the wood, which you use for the fire, is tzomeach, it blossoms. Every carbon has to have salt. Salt is domain, inanimate. And of course, a carbon has to be offered up by a person. A person, a person is a medaber, speech. And the Bnei Yisachar says something so beautiful. There's nowhere else in the world, there's nowhere outside of Karbanos where all four of these categories are incorporated together into the service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That's what a carbon does. A carbon again takes domain, inanimate, someach, that which grows, chai, that which is alive, and medaber, that which speaks, and combines all four of these categories into the service of Hashem. But the Medrash says a little bit differently. The Medrash number five writes, and this is incredibly beautiful. I'm Rabbi Hudabar Simon. Here's the power of a carbon. Listen to this phrase. A person never went to sleep in Yerushalayim in a state of sin. In a state of sin. Meaning that whatever you did wrong, if you were in Yerushalayim, you never went to sleep with that sin sitting on your head, sitting on your neshama. How so? Ketzad. Because at the end of the day, what would happen? There were two communal offerings, what we call the carbon tamid. Tamid, there's tamid shal shachar, there's a morning offering, and there's a tamid shal benarabayim, an afternoon offering. So the Medrash says something absolutely amazing. The morning offering, the tamid shal shachar, which was a communal offering, would atone for all of the sins that occurred over the night. And the Talmud Shalbein Arbayim, the afternoon offering, the afternoon Talmud, would atone for all of the daytime offerings. So isn't this incredible? That if you were in Yerushalayim, if you were in Yerushalayim, you never had to worry about a sin sitting on your neshama. Whatever you did wrong, your slate could be clean. How? Again, Talmud Shachar could take care of the nighttime Averos, Talmud Shalbein Arbayim, the afternoon Talmud, the daytime Averos. So isn't that the incredible? So when you had a base Hamikdash and there were Karbanos, Karbanos always had the ability to wipe the slate clean. But here's the issue. If you look at number six, we know the Yaakov Shimoni goes on. He says, Kimo Kain, Adam Shenichshal Ba'avera, Vahayadoig Lechaparas Chata'o, Hayaola Lirushai Makriv Karbanov, Venistach Loa Chata'o, Shechata. And now the Yaakov says, even if it's on a more basic level, think about this just a moment. A person committed an Avera. person committed an Avera. So, okay, when, a person, when I commit an Avera, a person commits an Avera, right, what's always hanging over my head? What, what, what do I never know with absolute certainty? Have I been forgiven? Have I been forgiven or not? Is the Avera there? Is the Avera not there? Says the Al-Kut number six, here's a great part, you have a base of Mikdash, you commit an Avera, what do you do? Get on, right, get on the donkey, get on the cart, get on the cart, whatever it is, bring your carbon to the base of Mikdash, Offer up your carbon, and all is good. All is cleansed. So you see, between the Medrash number five and the Medrash number six, pointing to this same theme, that the power of sacrificial service is that sacrificial service cleaned the slate. Does this not make you yearn for the base Hamikdash more than anything? What I wouldn't give for a clean slate. What I wouldn't give for a do-over. What I wouldn't give just for a brand new tomorrow. When there was a Beis HaMikdash, every single morning, the morning Tamid took care of the nighttime sins, the daytime Tamid took care of the daytime sins, and if for some reason you're not sure the Tamid covered you, no problem, bring your carbon to the Beis HaMikdash, offer it up, and you're good to go. Tabla rasa, blank slate, new beginning. However, Karbanos don't just act that way. Remember again, we don't believe like in hocus pocus stuff. If you want your slate cleaned, what do you have to do? What do you have to do? Shuvah. 
Take a look at number seven, Noam Elimelech, Rav Elimelech of Luzhensk, who lived from 1717 to 1787. The Noam Elimelech writes on a very basic level, Halo ein karban mechaper below tshuva. Noam Elimelech says, but one second, let's be clear. Let's just be clear. A carbon doesn't work by itself. You could bring all of the carbonos you want from here until tomorrow. At the end of the day, a carbon, the power of the carbon is only activated if it is accompanied by tshuva. There has to be a genuine repentance process that is part of the carbonic process. So now, what the normal Melech does is something fascinating. What he does is he says, yes, the carbon is there to affect tshuva. So daily communal offerings, wipe the slate clean. Personal offerings, wipe the slate clean. But how do you unlock the power of a carbon? How do you unlock it? The normal Melech says, Tshuva. Without tshuva. Without, and whatever tshuva means. Without that genuine introspection. Again, the Ramam goes through his steps of tshuva. Person has to recognize what they've done. Person has to own what they've done. Have remorse. Different plan for the future. All the different steps for tshuva. If you do tshuva, then you could unlock the power of a karban. Watch this. Says the Ma'ar Vashemesh. The Ma'ar Vashemesh writes, the Ma'ar Vashemesh was Rav Klonimus Kalman Epstein, actually the grandfather of the Piagets. No? The Piagets has the same name as his grandfather. Rav Klonimus Kalman Epstein lives from 1751 to 1823. So um, almost everyone who we're quoting tonight lives exactly around the same, the same basic time period. So the Ma'ar Vashemesh says something amazing. I'm going to go a little bit out of order. Take a look at number nine for just a moment. Take a look at number nine. Here the Ma'ar Vashemesh says as follows. He says... He says, So actually, let me, let, let me give this, let me, let me tell you number eight outside for just a moment. The Ma'ar Vashemesh is talking about the power of a tzaddik. Now remember in Chasidos, right, in Chasidos, so ultimately again, the Rebbe, the tzaddik, plays a pivotal role. And the power of Rebbe, the power of the tzaddik, is that when he is with his constituency, and this is incredible, the Ma'ar Vashemesh says, that sometimes when I am with my followers, I can't think straight. I find myself bombarded by all types of alien thoughts and thoughts that I don't normally have when I'm by myself. And the Ma'ar Vashemesh says something absolutely amazing. He says that sometimes when the tzaddik is connected to his flock, he understands that they're not where they need to be. And so those thoughts that are bombarding his neshama sometimes are not his. Whose thoughts are they? Whose thoughts are they? They're the people he's with. But they're telling the tzaddik, tzaddik, you need to motivate these people to do more, to be more, and to affect change. The Ma'ar Vashemesh says, where did we first see this dynamic? And look what he writes now in number nine. Listen to this. When the Beis Hamikdash was standing and the altar, the Mizbeach, was being used for sacrificial service, listen to this. And the Kohen, of course, is doing his service. Because remember, again, sacrificial service can only be performed by a Kohen. So the Kohen is doing his thing. He's doing the Avodah. He's performing the sacrificial service. And what would happen? The Kohen, if he was pious enough, would actually be able to tap into the wavelength of the thoughts of the people who are in the Beis Hamikdash. Can you imagine such a thing like this? It certainly makes you careful with what you think. Right? So here, so the Ma'ar Vashemesh is describing a dynamic where a Jew comes to the Beis Hamikdash, the Kohen, the Kohen who's his agent, who's his Shaliach, is offering up the Karban on his behalf. And the Kohen, if he's pious enough, is able to actually tap into the wavelength of the petitioner of the person bringing the carbon to the point that the Kohen, I don't know if it means could literally read his thoughts, but was able to understand, is this person in a good place or not? And watch this. And what was the coin able to perceive? And this is incredible. What was the coin able to perceive? Did this person do tshuva or not? 
The Kohen in the Beis HaMikdash was able to know if Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Rivka, Saru, whoever's bringing in the Karban, did they do tshuva or not? Because remember again, as we just said before, Karbanos are incredibly powerful. But in order to unlock the power of a Karban, you have to do tshuva. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting, which is, the truth is, what's the danger in Karbanos? What's the danger in Karbanos? The danger in Karbanos is, it's easy enough to go through the behavioral or mechanistic motions and think that you've discharged obligations, right? Doesn't this happen all the time? We get to Elul. We get to Elul. And it's incredible. It's incredible. What happens when Elul comes, right? Generally, how do my Elul preparations begin? How do they begin? Right? Do you mock me? Oh, okay, I forgot. I'm speaking to righteous women. I had to forgot, right? So right, you mock me, that's beautiful. Generally, the way people say, I'm taking on this and I'm taking on that. I'm going to say Sefer Tillim 15 times before breakfast. And I'm going to say Nishmas 27 times before I wash Nikolvasar. And I'm going to do all this stuff. It's going to be incredible. And that's great. Say Nishmas as much as you want. But at the end of the day, we often forget to actually do tshuva. In other words, before I take on anything, first there needs to be an inventory. What's broken inside of me? All of us have things that are broken. What's broken? Let me identify it. Let me actually come to terms with that which is broken. And then I need to make a plan. How am I going to fix it? And then you want to take on extra stuff to help you fix it. That's fantastic. So why is it that often we gravitate to taking stuff on? It's very simple. Because taking stuff on is so much easier than fixing that which is broken. Because taking on a million different tefillahs and a million different chasadim, first of all, it feels good, it's nice, it lifts me up. And again, I'm not minimizing the power of taking on, of engaging in positive dynamic activity. But at the end of the day, it's so much easier to take stuff on than it is to actually encounter that which is broken and find the courage to fix it. So the same thing happened in the base of Mikdash, says the Ma'ar Vashemesh. A Jew messed up. A Jew had something broken, so he or she is bringing a carbon to the Beis HaMikdash. I want to fix it. I want to fix it. How many people came to the Beis HaMikdash thinking, okay, brought the carbon, job done, check, check, let's go back, let's go have pizza, I don't know, whatever, whatever it is we're going to do, right? We, I did it, I did what I was supposed to do, and now I'm done. You're not done. You're not done. You brought the carbon. But the carbon is only meaningful if you activate its power through tshuva. So says the Ma'ar Vashemesh, something absolutely amazing. The Kohanim were able to feel if someone did tshuva or not. Have you ever heard anything like this in your life? I, I, just, I, have, I owe this to all of you that I learned this piece. The Kohanim were able to feel if someone did tshuva or not. Now listen to what the Ma'ar Vashemesh writes. And therefore, again, if it turned out that a person had not yet performed proper tshuva, listen to this. What would they do? The coin wouldn't go over. Ruvain, when are you going to do tshuva? Stopping such, a, stopping such a sinner. First of all, that never works, right? Frontal muster rarely works, rarely works. And even if it does, it has a very limited shelf life. So at the end of the day, what would the coin do? This is incredible. Remember, Shira, song, was an incredibly important part of service in the Beis HaMikdash. In fact, if you offered up a carbon without Levitic song, the carbon was invalidated, was invalid, was not good. So says the Ma'ar Vashemesh, if the coin sensed that someone didn't do tshuva, he would motion to the Levian and he would say, Sing the song again. Sing again. Start the nigan again. Start the song again. Just sing maybe a little more intensity, a little more hislavos, a little bit of kavana. And then what would happen? What would happen? You couldn't be within the walls of the Beis HaMikdash and not get swept away by the song of the Levian. And so that even someone who didn't come to the Beis HaMikdash with the intention of doing tshuva, would be so moved and so inspired and so overwhelmed by the ongoing song of the Levian that the person would just want to do tshuva more than anything. 
This, says the Ma'arva Shemesh, is what happened in the Beis HaMikdash. That it was the Beis HaMikdash, where you never had to go to sleep with a sin on your head. Because the Tamid Shal Shachar could take care of the nighttime sins, the Tamid Shal Ben Arabim, the afternoon Tamid could take care of the daytime sins. And if you weren't confident enough in the Tamid, you could go ahead and bring your own carbon. But at the end of the day, carbon by itself does not work. You have to do tshuva. You have to do tshuva. Don't worry. Because even if your heart was hard, and even if you did not feel that you were able already to do tshuva, the Kohen got you. The Kohen got you. And the Kohen, without saying a word, probably just with a little smile, was able to know that you had not yet done tshuva. But it's okay. No one's going to yell at you. No one's going to scream at you. No one's going to make a rally against you. No one's even going to acknowledge. It's going to be all unspoken. But in that moment after the Kohen smiles at you because you both know that you have to work on something, he signals to the Levium, the Shiva starts up. And maybe not the first time, and maybe not the second time, and maybe not even the third time. But at some machzer, at some time when the Levium are singing, the heart of stone melts. The Lev Basar, the heart of flesh returns. And now I could finally do tshuva. And herein lies the beauty of a Beis HaMikdash. See, when the Beis HaMikdash stood, there was no such thing, so to speak, as unfinished business. I'll ask you the following question. Think about something inside of you that's broken. Don't raise your hand or call it out. Right? Think about something inside of you that's broken. And then ask yourself the following question. How long has it been broken for? And if you're like me, which I think in this realm of the human condition, we're often very much alike. The stuff that's broken inside of me didn't break yesterday. Didn't break today. It's been broken for years. It's been broken for years. So what do I do about that? Well, about my broken kite, what do I do? So we do interesting things. We try to make it look a little nicer. Whatever, I'll put a vase of proverbial vase of flowers on top of it. Be a little doily, a little something, right? Some, some, some window, sh something. I'll pretty it up, or more often, I'll just push it away and pretend like it's not a problem, or I'll convince myself that it's an unfixable problem, which is the greatest piece of fiction that we feed ourselves day in and day out, that I have something that's broken inside of me that can't be fixed. You see, in a world without a base hamikdash, you could just go through life being broken, and there's nothing here to fix me. Of course, I could choose to fix myself. But if I choose not to fix myself, you can go through life fundamentally and wholly broken. And I want to tell you, as someone who deals a lot with death, I know that sounds morose, but like Levias, people who are terminally ill, I've had over the course of my career the opportunity to be with many, many people in their last moments. And the number of people who express remorse about the lives they led and the things they didn't do and the things they didn't correct, it's staggering. But I guess if we think about it, it's not surprising. Because I would venture to say, I'm not a betting man, but if I was, I would venture to say that almost every single person here tonight has something that is broken and it's been broken for a while and I just haven't tried or haven't or, or maybe just have given up trying to fix it. Because you see, in a world without a base Hamikdash, you can get away going through life with broken stuff. And there's nothing there to force you to fix it. But at the end of the day, in a base Hamikdash, you couldn't escape doing tshuva. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? And a base Hamikdash, I mean, you could escape, you could not show up. You could not show up, that's true. You could just not show up. But in a world with a base Hamikdash, as long as you're willing to show up and do at least behaviorally or mechanistically what was incumbent upon you, you would get swept away by the shira of the Levium. You could not go through life in a perpetual state of broken kite because at some point in time you'd be forced, you'd have no choice but to fix that which is broken. That's what we mourn. 
I mourn the absence of a base hamikdash. I mourn that ability to have a place where no matter how dead set I am against fixing that which is broken in me, that I could go to a place that's going to awaken my soul in such a way that I'll have no choice but to do tshuva. I'll have no choice but to fix that which is broken. I'll have no choice but to address those things that are in a state of disrepair. That's what we lack in a Beis HaMikdash. In a non-Beis HaMikdash world, you could go through your entire life until 120 and you could remain broken. And there is nothing in this world to push you or make you become whole. But when there was a Beis HaMikdash and when there will be a Beis HaMikdash, there's a place where no matter how hard-hearted you may be, if you walk in, if you're willing to walk in, you'll be swept away with the waves of tshuva. This is the power of the Beis HaMikdash. And I think if we just take this one step further, and with this, with this I'll conclude, there's one more piece to this. There's one more piece to this. So now, what do we do with this? Now in this world, in this world, so now, okay, I'm here, I'm without a Beis HaMikdash, and I want a Beis HaMikdash. So how do I get there? And the al Sheikh says something absolutely amazing. The al Sheikh writes, he quotes the Pasuk in number 10, Make from me a Mikdash, and I will dwell within you. Of course, we know that, again, it's a unique Pasuk, because the Torah says, Make from me a Mikdash, I'll dwell within you, plural. It should be, Make from me a Mikdash, and I will dwell within it. Why Bisocham? And the Al-Sheikh says something absolutely amazing. The Al-Sheikh says, because the Kaddish Baruch Hu is giving us the recipe to get the Beis HaMikdash back. See, what we mourn is that I don't have the place that makes me whole. So although this is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, how do we get it back? By working on ourselves to make ourselves whole. In other words, if I can do for me what would have normally required a Beis HaMikdash, if I can make that happen for myself, then at the end of the day, in that merit of fixing ourselves, of essentially performing for ourselves what the Beis HaMikdash would have performed for us, but now there is no Mikdash. There is no structure to fix me. There is no Levitic song to inspire me. There is no Kohen to read my mind and read my soul. So therefore, says the Al-Sheikh, the only choice I have is to fix myself. And if I find the courage to fix myself, then you know what I'm doing? I'm making myself into a Beis HaMikdash. If I find the courage to self-inspire, if I find the courage to stop making excuses enough of blaming everyone and their mother for everything that's broken in my life and just own it. By the way, I'll tell you a little secret. Even if it is someone else's fault, it's so much better to own it. I know that sounds very Jewish, right? To take responsibility for something, it's not your fault. But Lamaisa, it is so much better to own that which is broken even if it's not. So I'll tell you why. Because if you give responsibility to someone else, that means you are powerless to fix it. But if you say, you know what, yeah, I was wronged by other people. I was wronged by other people. And by the way, there's no two ways about it. It's not like, like, like there's gray. Maybe I was wrong. No, I was wronged. Got it. You were wronged. You were wronged. You were wronged. So you could either continue to be a victim, in which case you are powerless to fix that which is broken, or take the reins. You're right. You were wronged. You were wrong. But now at the end of the day, this is your life. So what are you going to do? And if we could just find the courage to own everything that is broken, everything that is broken, and be honest, I can't fix everything that's broken in one fell swoop, but if I can acknowledge at least one or two things that are broken, and finally find the courage to address them, then what I am doing is the Bilvavi Mishkan Evne. I am turning myself into a Beis HaMikdash. I'll sing the song of tshuva to myself. I'll sing the song of inspiration to myself. I'll sing the song of personalistic redemption to myself. And if I'm able to rehabilitate myself in the way that my ancestors were rehabilitated in the, Mish in the, Mish in the Beis HaMikdash, then says the Al-Sheikh, by turning ourselves into a Beis HaMikdash, that is how we will be blessed with the Bayis Shlishi. That is how we will be blessed with the third Beis HaMikdash. 
if we turn ourselves into a Beis HaMikdash, if we turn ourselves into a space of personalistic acknowledgement and ownership over that which is broken, find the courage to address it, rehabilitate ourselves one step at a time. Beis HaMikdash wasn't built in a day. One step at a time. And at the end of the day, I turn myself into a Beis HaMikdash. And when I turn myself into a Beis HaMikdash, then, then, I am privileged to have the Bayish Lishi. And now, if we bring this all the way, if we bring this all the way full circle, remember again, how did we begin 45 minutes ago? We began with the story of Rabbi Gamliel, who was living in the neighborhood with this bereft mother, with this bereaved mother. And the Medrash told us that every single night, this mother would go ahead and cry. She would cry for the loss of her beautiful child. And Rabbi Gamliel would be reminded of the loss of the Khurban, excuse me, the loss of the Beis HaMikdash. And we asked, what's the connection between the loss of a child and the loss of the Beis HaMikdash? And the truth is, now we understand it. The loss of a child is a traumatic and overwhelming loss for a variety of different reasons, Rahman al-Islam. But one of the things that the loss of a child brings with it is a loss of a sense of self. If Sham Shunafal Hirsch brings down that one of the reasons we have children is because what man wants more than anything is eternality. Right? Eternality. I want to be eternal. I want to be immortal. But of course, that's not in the cards. What's the next best thing to immortality? The next best thing? Children. Why? Because this way, when I go ahead and I leave this world, there's a piece of me that lives on. There's a piece of me which continues. And so when a parent loses, when a parent loses a child, it's not just that they've lost someone they love. They've lost a piece of themselves. I lose a piece of me. If I lose my child. And Rabbi Gamliel realized in that moment, that's what happened with the Beis HaMikdash. I lost a piece of me. I lost the ability to be the best version of myself. I lost a pure and pristine piece of my identity. Because when the Beis HaMikdash was here, I could go there and I could bring my carbon, and I could do my tshuva, and even if I was not holding in a place, there were all of these people and all of these things to help facilitate my personalistic, cathartic change. That was all there. And when the Beis HaMikdash was destroyed, Rabbi Gamliel said, like that bereaved mother, we lost a piece of ourselves. And I think this is what we have to focus on as we go into Tisha B'av. Because it's true. We mourn everything. To be clear, we mourn everything. We mourn every single catastrophe of Klal Yisrael over the last 2,000 years. But at the end of the day, the pivotal event that we focus on more than anything is the loss of the Beis HaMikdash. And never for a moment think that we mourn the loss of a structure. Because buildings, Jews are good at building buildings, Baruch Hashem. We could build buildings from here until tomorrow. It's not a problem. It's not the building we mourn. It's what the building did for us. It's more specifically what the Karbonos did for us. It's what the Song of the Levium did for us. That's what I mourn, that when the Beis HaMikdash was here, I couldn't go through life remaining broken. At some point in time, I would have to deal with the stuff that is in a state of disrepair. But alas, in a world without a Beis HaMikdash, you could live your entire life with a big smile on your face, even successful in many areas, but fundamentally broken on the inside. But herein, lie, herein lies the secret of Geula, as the Al-Sheikh teaches us, that if we want the base Hamikdash, if we truly want Geula, if we truly want the third base Hamikdash, then we have to transform ourselves into a base Hamikdash. And I think, again, the avoda of these days, these remaining days, is to introspect, is to be honest and look within ourselves and ask ourselves, what is broken? And it's difficult, and it's grueling. And again, the, my, my reflexive reaction is when I identify that which is broken, I'm going to say, oh, it's broken, but. There's always the broken but, right? And the broken but is, it's broken, but it's not my fault. Okay, maybe it's not your fault, maybe it is your fault, but who cares? One thing is clear, which if it's broken inside of you, you are the only person who can fix it. No one else in the world can make you whole except 
you. And if we do this avoda over the course, not 10 things, not seven things, start with one thing. One thing that's broken that I'm going to fix. Then we turn ourselves into a Beis HaMikdash. And says the Alshech, if we turn ourselves into a personalistic Beis HaMikdash, there is no telling what could happen. Perhaps, perhaps, we'll be Zohar to the Bayesh Lishi. I'll just conclude by pointing out that I think this year is ripe for this. You know, this year Tisha B'Av is unique. Tisha B'Av is a Nidcha. It's a Nidcha, right? The ninth of Av falls. Everybody knows this, right? Everybody, right? Because everybody's asking all these kind of questions. Right? So it's a Nidcha. So the ninth of Av falls out on Shabbos. So we'll fast on the tenth of Av on Sunday. And there are many leniencies built in, built into the fast because it's a Nidcha, because it's delayed. You know, I was thinking earlier this week, oh, what a fascinating year this is. Do you know what it means for this year? Do you know what it means? I know it's going to sound strange when I say it. There's no Tisha B'Av this year. There's no Tisha B'Av. Right? Think about it. There is no Tisha B'Av. There's Yud B'Av. In other words, we'll observe the fast of the 9th of Av on the 10th of Av, but there is no observance on the 9th of Av. And the Bashant of HaKadosh says something absolutely amazing. He says, any year when it is a nidcha, the potential for geula is even more acute. Because in a year when it's a nidcha, in a year when Tishabah falls down on Shabbos, that means there's not a real Tishabah. So already in a year without a real Tishabah, you know what that means. That means we're one step closer to geula. We're one step closer to redemption because now I have a year 5782 where there is not a real observance. I mean, when I say real, a pure and unadulterated observance of Tisha B'Av. It's a nitcha. This is a year without a real Tisha B'Av. And if this is a year without a real Tisha B'Av, then this is a year when Gula is a little bit closer. And if this is a year when Gula is a little bit closer, then there is no telling what we can accomplish. Over these days, over Tisha B'Av, if we just find the courage to make ourselves into a true Beis HaMikdash and engage in that difficult process of introspection and of going out and fixing that which is broken, perhaps this will be the year that in the merit of building our personalistic Batei Mikdash, the Kaddish Baruch will finally see fit to bring the Melech HaMashiach and with the Melech HaMashiach Tchias HaMesim imagine, imagine all of the people who we cry for all of the people who we mourn for imagine what's going to be like when Cloud Yisrael is reunited imagine the Tchias HaMesim and imagine how it's going to be when we see the third base HaMikdash descend from Shamayim, fully intact ready to absorb all of Cloud Yisrael within its walls that dream and that vision is within reach. All we need to do is to make ourselves into that personal base Hamikdash. And may we be Zoh Hamir Hashem to do it this year.